My name is Laura Lazaro Cabrera, and I am a legal officer at Privacy International. Femtech to me is an opportunity for women to discuss the ways in which tech can impact them in positive and negative ways in a safe space. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and in today's episode, I interview Laura Lazaro Cabrera, a legal officer at Privacy International. Since the overturning of the constitutional right to abortion in the United States, you may have seen social media posts telling you to delete your period tracking app or posts on Facebook about going camping in other states. Well, I wanted to make sure we had a very clear understanding of both the users of Femtech digital health apps and the teams building them on what is the legal implications of tracking your reproductive health on your phone. Today, I deep dive with Laura, a data privacy expert, on the facts and fiction of what having information on your female health could mean for you. Please be sure you are subscribed to the Femtech Focus newsletter and join our virtual community for more updates on how females and innovators in the U.S. can stay vigilant and safe in these unprecedented times. Hey, Laura, welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. You were on my favorite podcast besides Femtech Focus, obviously, but it was Science Friday. And I sent that episode to my team and said, we have to blast this episode. This is so important. It is so current. It is so relevant. I need her on the show. And then I saw on my calendar, two weeks later, we have an interview. So excited. So very, very happy to have you on here, even if it's under sad circumstances. I know. And I'm very excited to be here and share a little bit of our experience with y'all. Yes. Awesome. Well, let's kick off our interview before we get down into the the nitty gritty of it. We just love to learn a little bit about our guests. So tell us, where are you from? You know, what is your profession and, um, you know, what has essentially brought you to this point to be a, a qualified person to speak on this topic of data privacy? Right. So I'm based in London. Um, as many of you will come to learn, I'm a legal officer at a London-based charity called Privacy International. And we research and advocate globally against government and corporate abuses of data and technology. So while I'm a lawyer here and I've built my human rights career here in the UK, I'm originally from Peru. And growing up, I was exposed to a lot of inequality. And that got me thinking about those being the most negatively impacted by it, which in turn got me thinking about vulnerabilities and risks specific to certain groups. And it's with that frame of mind that I went into human rights and tech. Originally, I was working at a generalist um, litigation outfit within a big charity called Open Society Foundations, and then I moved into more specialized work on data protection and tech at Privacy International, and that's what I've been doing for two years and a half now. Wow. Did you um, think that you were going to be someone who downloads period tracking apps and check them out? Like, Did you think periods had anything to do with what you were going to do as a career? Never. I would have never imagined that. I was always working with, um, I think, is regularly considered to be more um, sort of urgent type of human rights work or scary things like 
torture or right to life cases, you know, things that just seem more horrifying on the face of them. Mm-hmm. And when you start looking at peer tracking apps, if you don't know what goes on with the data all the time, then it's all pink like, and butterflies and flowers. Exactly. And it's, so, <laughs> it's beautiful. They're beautiful to look at. And the few peer tracking apps that I've played with, I've seen that they have a beautiful display. They're just very engaging. You're motivated to put it, data into them. So it almost feels like a game. And I never thought that it, anything that felt like a game could have the potential to be so harmful at the same time. So that was one of the discoveries that came with this job. Yeah. I mean, it's it's telling when you say, yeah, my background is in like studying privacy and torture. <laughs> and then you're like, and then I got put, assigned to this period tracking app because it's kind of in the same vein. So it's uh, it's this is insane. I'm really excited for this Um dialogue today. You published a report in 2019 on women's health apps and privacy concerns. We're going to dive deep into some of your findings, some of your suggestions. Uh, First, could you please provide us kind of an overview of why and how how did that research start? Why? um, And what were some of your major findings? So originally, we didn't conceive of the research as being exclusively framed in reproductive rights terms or indeed concerning solely period tracking apps. We were just running a broader research project of a series, a very wide range of apps uh, used on Android. It was, I think, the most popular apps used uh, by people worldwide. And we're just trying to see what data was being shared with third parties and specifically what data was being shared with Facebook. And it just so happened that some of those apps were some of the world's most popular peer tracking apps. And then at that point, we realized that there was maybe something in there for us to give a closer look to. And so at that point, we decided to carry out the research project in two stages. The first stage was to research the data that was being shared by some of the most popular peer tracking apps with third parties. And the second stage was to assess exactly how much of the information that we're putting into the app was actually kept and stored by the company. So going back to that first stage, we, of course, downloaded lots of peer tracking apps. We use them in the same way that an ordinary user would. Um, And then we ran a few of those peer tracking apps through our data interception environment, which we developed in-house, and we analyzed whether there were any discrepancies between the privacy policy of the app and the data that was actually shared. And we found that some of the apps shared a lot of information with Facebook, which confirmed our sort of broader original findings. Um, For instance, two of the apps that we reviewed out of several carried out what could be described as extensive data sharing with Facebook at the time of the research. And the information that was shared included information about sexual activity, alcohol consumption, the date of the last period, as well as the duration of the cycle, and many, many other data points that users wouldn't expect, first of all, would be shared with third parties at all. But secondly, it wasn't necessarily flagged in the way that it should have been in the privacy policy. So there was really no way of knowing for someone who doesn't have Uh, the sort of comfort that we do running tech research. And then um, the second stage of the research, where we really tried to figure out exactly how much data was getting to the company, um, we started out by, of course, putting even more information in the app. um, And actually, many of the apps make this easier. Many of them have a diary function, so you can really put anything you like in there. You can describe your personal life. You can describe your professional life. You can do anything that you like. Um, And in order to retrieve that information and find out what the companies had on us, our strategy was to use data subject access requests. Um, I'm going to simplify that term straight away. 
In Europe, there is a law called the General Data Protection Regulation, which empowers everyone in the EU to ask public or private companies for their data. Uh, and that That's is GDPR. In the US, we usually just know it as GDPR. Oh, right? great. The GDPR is even better. Yep. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Um, and that process where a data subject or a person exercises the right in writing to have access to their data is called the DSAR, Data Subject Access Request. Okay. Um, and we did that with every single period tracking company uh, or app that we surveilled. And our findings were that virtually all of the information that we were putting in was being stored by the companies, including moods, as well as the diary entries that I mentioned, and every angle, every single other data point that we fed into the app. So that was also a striking finding um, because as has become more relevant today in the US, the information that you put in and the information that you give the company is information that those companies can then share on the third parties. Yeah. And because you can never really know, or at least it cannot be guaranteed, sadly, that the privacy policy will disclose all those third parties in advance, then you just have to take it one step back and then find out what sort of information they could be potentially giving out to other people. Yeah. So that was uh, the second limb of our research. Did you find that they were tracking your location as well? No, no, no. No uh, tracking for, location, okay. Because no. I've heard, um, I recently gave a talk to some privacy lawyers and I said, hey, we need your help. Y'all are the experts, but let me just tell you some of the things happening in femtech where we need privacy you know, experts helping us. And I came across a study that showed um, some period tracking apps, at least in the United States, are tracking your location settings and they could actually sell that data based on if you went to an abortion clinic and how long you were there for. So um, it sounds like maybe the European ones weren't tracking location, though. That's incredibly concerning, uh, what yeah. you just shared. Um, yeah. In our experience, but to be honest, some of the permissions that these apps request can be really intrusive. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, I mean, collecting location data for a peer tracking app, you would wonder whether that is ever necessary or whether that serves the purpose. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, mm, yeah. Does, do I only ovulate at a certain elevation or like, <laughs> why do we need to know this? <laughs> I mean, maybe there is a secret uh, or a big scientific finding that yeah. they're sitting on where our location is hugely influential and relevant yeah. for menstrual health, but failing that, then it's incredibly concerning that that data is being collected in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, I love Femtech founders. This that's why I, I dedicate my life to supporting them. Um, and overall, like I'm talking 99.9% of the femtech industry seems to be so altruistic and in and in good energy, good objectives, good goals, like good humans, right? But you're saying a lot of them are sharing data with Facebook. So can we break that down? What is sharing data with Facebook mean? Is it like they're downloading data from their app and sending it in an attached file to, you know, uh, Zuckerberg? Or are they like, how is Facebook getting this data? And like, do Femtech founders even know Facebook is getting it? You know, like how transparent is that? Just walk us through the, what that word sharing means. So many people might not be aware of it. And the reason for this is that many apps uh, that were developed early on use the Facebook software development kit, which is uh, by all accounts, a well-meaning tool that just wants to help people out when they're developing these new apps. 
But uh, a while back, as part of the default settings, the app would be sending back some information to Facebook and users wouldn't be notified about it. So they would interact with the app and then information, little tiny bits, uh, I'd say bite-sized pieces of information relating to the engagement with the app would then be sent back to Facebook in a way that is not at all evident as a user. And I think as a developer, you really have to be looking out for those nuggets of information in the testing phase, because the only way we were able to find that out was when we ran the apps through our data interception environment. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been obvious. And the way that information is shared can come in a range of different forms. So it could be, for instance, your actual reply or your actual written input in response to a question issued by the app, or it could be, for instance, a number. Uh, let's say you are asked for your gender and you're given three options, male, female, or non-binary. Uh, you might not, once you answer that question, the answer to the question itself might not be sent out to Facebook, but then there might be a specific value associated to your answer. So for instance, male will be one, female will be two, non-binary will be three, and so on. So not all information shared with Facebook looks the same. But the one thing to keep in mind is that it's not always obvious from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Now, I hear that the software development kit has been amended so that it is at least clearer whether or not you're enabling that functionality where data gets shared with Facebook, which is great. Because what we want to do is give people the choice as to whether or not they want to build their app in that way. And I think most people, most Femtech founders certainly wouldn't want to share Facebook unless that would translate in an added benefit for the app and for the users. Yeah. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is founders, femtech founders who are going to develop a digital health app, check those settings if data is being shared with Facebook or not and make sure you're, you know, selecting what you want to have happen. Um, Do we know what Facebook's doing with knowing how long my menstrual cycle is? We have no idea. And that's one of the the biggest issues. We're not the only people researching this. There's lots of different organizations trying to look into what Facebook does with all the data that it receives from a range of different sources. And you can never really know because there isn't that level of transparency. Interestingly enough though, Facebook actually doesn't want any businesses sending it health data and it says so in its policy. So it's actually asking people not to provide that data in any way. Um, But whether or not people are heeding that instruction, is very unclear. And certainly recently, some evidence has emerged to the contrary. So the markup in the last couple of weeks published some research relating to data shared by crisis pregnancy centers with Facebook. And out of the over 2,000 crisis pregnancy centers that they surveilled using a similar sort of data interception environment, they found that nearly 300 were actually sending data to Facebook about visitor information which is terrifying. And then you wonder what, what is happening to that data and what is Facebook doing with it? Yeah. Uh, so it's a very live issue at the moment. Yeah. Do you think there's other like no code or low code software solutions like plugins that founders could maybe use because they're strug- not struggling to fundraise, but they're so early stage, they need an MVP. Maybe they're not a coder. So they're on the internet and there's these like, you know, hey, here, just download this code and like, you'll have an app. Is that prevalent or is that like super rare? Is this something like everyone should, all investors should be asking their founders, like, how did you develop this? Honestly, it's not something that we've looked into. There may well be other options available that don't require that sort of data to be put in or that don't collect that much information. I'm sure there will be, um, but we don't have any specific recommendations in that regard. 
One thing to look out for, though, is um, involving the involvement of marketing companies mm. or companies specializing in customer analytics um, or customer intelligence. Uh, what we've seen across different strands of our research is that it's becoming increasingly common for companies to try to measure customer engagement and satisfaction with the product that they are selling, which, of course, um, is completely reasonable and mm. it shouldn't raise any eyebrows. However, um, sometimes the information that is shared with these third parties is way, way too extensive. Um, and sometimes the same benefit could be obtained by sharing a lot less information. So in a separate research project that we did where we started looking at health apps and diet apps, uh, we found that one in particular was sharing all of the information that was put into the app or the online platform with one of these customer analytics companies. Um, so it's something worth thinking about, you know, at the time when you're trying to engage with this sort of service, how much insight are you going to give that company into your work, into the lives and the personal data of your customers? So interesting. So, you know, ask yourself, does this marketing firm need this specific, do they need everyone's address? Like, is just the state they live in or urban versus rural good enough? Do they actually need people's zip codes, right? Or does this marketing firm really need their cell phone number? You know, stuff like that, that can identify your users of your app, right? That's what I'm hearing you say in terms of strategy. Yeah, yeah. I think that's up for, for companies to negotiate. I think it's open. I mean, since they're purchasing a service, uh, it's up mm. for them to discuss the terms in which they want that service to be provided. And one of them could very well be just be as privacy observing as possible. Yeah. So I recently learned that HIPAA um, stands for something I didn't know it stood for. I thought the I in HIPAA was information. And I was sure that one of the P's was privacy, but apparently it's not. It's like insurance and placement. So what is HIPAA? Because I think that some founders and investors and just people in general say, oh, well, the app is HIPAA compliant. So all my data is safe. Is that true? Like, tell us what that's really like. So it's a hard one. And for us, it was a hard piece of legislation to get our head around because we mostly deal with Europe and we're based in the UK. So our frame of reference is completely different when it comes to laws. And we've always been baffled by the fact that in the US, there is no federal privacy law. It's so strange. And so we end up going back to these relatively niche um, legislative instruments that happen to cover some aspect of privacy or data protection. So HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, uh, not the sort of thing that you think is remotely related to data or privacy, but it does have a privacy element to it. There is a privacy rule that is covered by HIPAA. And here, I think it's helpful to cover a key difference between HIPAA and GDPR in Europe. HIPAA's privacy protections in connection to health data specifically, because that's that's all we uh, they cover, only apply to a limited number of entities, whereas GDPR applies to all entities which are processing personal data at large. It doesn't even need to be health data. Of course, it covers health data, but it just also covers all personal data. So where HIPAA imposes certain conditions for entities to fall within the remit of the privacy rule, GDPR applies to all entities which process the data of people located in the EU. So it doesn't even matter where the company is located in the world, so long as the person whose data is being processed is within the territory of the European Union, which is fantastic. Um, So 
obviously when we come to analyze HIPAA, we can be a little bit judgy. <laughs> uh, and it may well be that HIPAA does a good job of protecting health data when the relevant privacy rule applies. Yeah, I, that's yeah. entirely possible. But the issue here is one of scope. In other words, whether it applies often enough and it doesn't appear that it does. For instance, we understand that it would not apply to the health data that is processed by peer tracking apps or indeed other sort of pseudo medical entities that purport to provide some sort of legitimate medical advice, but in reality don't. Um, so that poses a serious challenge in terms of uh, health data protection in the US. Because it's not easy to be HIPAA compliant. And it's as an early stage founder, if you don't have to be, you don't want to say, oh, I need another $100,000 so we can have be HIPAA compliant. Usually it's like, a, oh, we're going to be so fast tracked to a billion dollar company because we don't have to be HIPAA compliant. But now in, you know, we can absolutely be judgy here. Let's judge the United States of America because it's a total shit show right now um, that, you know, women's periods are, there's penalties now. There's penalties for being pregnant. Um, abortion is now criminalized in about 12 states, um, at least in the next 14 days or so, and those trigger laws are fully enacted. And uh, and today, by the way, we are recording this interview on June 27th. So uh, if anything happens in the next two weeks or so before we air this episode, uh, just let us know. It's June 27th today. So it, abortion is criminalized in a few states already, more coming down the line. What does that mean for females using um, period tracking apps that may indirectly or sometimes directly show that she got pregnant and then is no longer pregnant because they got a miscarriage or they had an abortion. Um, there, there's evidence now in these apps that could show that that happened. So what are the implications here? Like, am I overreact? I'm always, I'm never overreacting. Ladies, you're never overreacting. Um, but <laughs> Uh, am I off by saying like, oh my gosh, women could be put on murder charges and the law is subpoenaing their subpoenaing their um, period tracking data? Like, is that far-fetched or is that reality? It's not far-fetched at all. And I think sadly it's become since this Friday, last Friday, uh, it's become a realistic prospect that maybe some law enforcement agencies across several states, particularly those that have those trigger laws in place, that those law enforcement agencies will be seeking access to some of the data collected by peer tracking apps. Then again, um, there are mitigations. I mean, it's a it's a terrible place to be in now, but hoping that there will be some sort of delay in terms of law enforcement getting to terms with what this means uh, for the whatever state that they're in and trying to work out what sort of strategies they're going to deploy to try and enforce these trigger laws. I think allowing for that sort of um, teething process, hopefully, that will take place, then I think there's still a window of time where women can try and contact those peer tracking apps that they've been using, check out the privacy policy, see what's on there, see what the data retention policy is, see what they can do, what steps they can actually take to get that data erased, including historic data, and say, look, I just want to make sure that this is taken out from your systems. And then, you know, you can just have that little extra safety at the end of the day that that data will be used against you. But sadly, it is possible uh, now as to whether or not 
your engagement with a peer tracking app will be conclusive evidence of your having committed a crime. That will have to be decided on a case-by-case basis, um, depending also on the strength of other complementary evidence. Uh, but at the end of the day, you don't really want anything remotely indicating that you did something that at the time you did it couldn't even remotely be considered a crime. Um, so I think it definitely is a wake-up call for lots of people who've been engaging with period tracking apps to just be more assertive with their data and to not be afraid to just go to certain companies and then just say, honestly, I mean, stop engaging, engaging with them if the fear is that in future there might be some sort of evidence that they might have undertaken an abortion. But if the concern is past data, see what they can do about that data. And importantly, whether they're whether or not they're comfortable doing anything about that data, considering many of the laws that can apply in relation to destruction of evidence. That's also something worth um, exploring. But again, that also will change from state to state. God, destruction of evidence. My yes. period tracker app, destruction of evidence. Um, this is a question that just came to my mind that you may or may not know the answer to, but like, um, I was thinking about, okay, from today forward, I'm not going to track my stuff anymore. But what I'm also hearing is that there is potential for essentially a backlog. Like if I had an abortion in the past and I'm in a state where it is a criminal offense, like could they potentially, you know, look in my history, right? It's not just about my new activity since Friday. That's not how that works, right? (laughs) Like when the Supreme Court overturns it, it's like legal as of last week, illegal this week. I don't know. Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, in law in general, there's a principle of non-retroactivity. So new laws that are promulgated usually won't cover past behavior prior to that law coming into force. But then again, in some countries and in some places, there can be exceptions for certain types of crimes, especially the most serious, uh, the most serious types of crimes. And here we talk about a standard of limitations, and that can range mm. from a few years to, you know, just never, never there never being a deadline on when you can bring a case on a particular issue. So it's something to for people to investigate and to learn about in their different states. Got it. Um, we keep talking a lot about law enforcement getting this data, but hackers can get this data. There was a case in Finland where hackers got a bunch of women's data and essentially blackmailed women into like, pay us money or else we're going to share this data with people. Um, obviously, women's, you know, reproductive lives is incredibly private. And so I've heard some, you know, talk about the price of women's reproductive data. The value is literally increasing by the day now for hackers to, you know, potentially hack and potentially blackmail women or sell it to other people and um, just horrible stuff. But, you know, what I want to ask you is, what can femtech founders do to protect their data? Like what should they really be concerned with their users data and like be investing in things like maybe blockchain or I don't know what you would recommend, but can you tell us a little bit about security, data security? I don't have any specific recommendations per se as to what they should do, but they should make sure that they're building regular security reviews that they're testing the system to make sure that every single vulnerability, if it does come up, is patched as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if you had asked me this question um, three years ago, I would have told you, really, hackers and you know information about women's abortions doesn't seem likely. What would they be interested? But you're very right to point out that now that the consequences 
of disinformation coming to light can be very serious for some women in some states of the U.S. and other parts of the world, then that information becomes even more valuable because then hackers know that they can exploit people's fear of being convicted, of being sent to prison, or just being chased uh, by law enforcement. So it's something that Fentech founders should definitely be thinking about in terms of the regular checks of the app and trying to improve the app, making sure that they're building in all the necessary safeguards so that that app and the information contained therein is as safe as possible. I don't think you can ever say, and certainly my colleagues who are technologists would kill me if I said that there is a 100% kind of efficient solution when it comes to security. What I understand is that it's more of an iterative process. So it's a constant learning curve where you try to improve the security and you try to improve the product as opposed to a one-size-fits-all solution. But it's something that just needs to be at the priority of the things that people want to do with their apps. Yeah, that's right. So Femtech founders, prioritize security, prioritize your privacy policy. Don't just download one from the internet. Like this is actually really freaking important. Um, And then in terms of the users, um, when I heard you on Science Friday, you said, you know, just deleting the app from your home screen doesn't mean your data goes away. And I was like, uh oh, that's right. And then you're kind of alluding already to reaching out to an app and asking, hey, can I please have all my data uh, erased? Can you just give a little like, here's the top three steps. If you are, you know, uh, a female in the United States who's been tracking your period and doesn't want, you know, no, it's nobody's business, but your own, what should you look for in a privacy policy? What should you, you should you email their like contact us form? Like, is there any specific words? I always like to make it as easy as possible. So like a one, two, three, like what should users do if they'd like all their data deleted or to even find out if they can? Okay. So top three things I would say first, Make sure to read the privacy policy and what type of data is collected. Of course, you know what sort of information you put into the app, but that might not always align with the data that is actually collected by the company and put into their servers. So make sure you know how much is going back to them. Number two is make sure that you check which data is shared with third parties. So I think here the keyword to, to look for in your control F function should be third party or third parties and check what data is shared with them for what purpose. If there is a mismatch between the first step and the second, as in there is data collected that isn't then shared on with third parties, I think you should still make the assumption that it is possible for the information that is not publicly declared as being shared with third parties being shared with third parties. Because, you know, there are always slight discrepancies, or at least in our experience, it's never 100% clear. So just make sure that you're you're making that assessment, comparing one and two. And then finally, Uh, just look out for erasure or deletion or delete or erase in that privacy policy if you don't have time. That's the one thing that I would want people to come away with. Just control F, delete, erase. And there usually will be a couple of paragraphs about what you can do to have your data erased. And usually there will be a dedicated email address. Um, If not for the erasure process, then for addressing all queries related to the privacy policy. So it should be possible to get in touch directly with the people who will be in a position to act upon your request. And hopefully it is something that apps will be offering to do, even if they're solely based in the U.S. So, of course, when by offering this option, they're going above and beyond what they're legally required to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they are, that's amazing. And you should definitely take advantage of that opportunity if it's available to you. A lot of advice, a lot of good, you know, 
a good advice, but there's also, there's just so much that I feel like is, we'll just have to wait and see, you know, like this court case will exist eventually, you know, soon where someone's using some data from something and we have to figure it out um, because the constitutional right to abortion really wasn't the constitutional right to abortion. It was the constitutional right to privacy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think it's so pertinent, right. That it's a privacy constitutional right to privacy and privacy policies. It's all, it's all wrapped up. It's all wrapped up together. Um, and, you know, one doesn't think your gynecologist is sharing your, this information, but you know what your our new gynecologist is our iPhone now, you know, in femtech, that's what we do. We use technology to improve women's health. So a lot of implications here. Um, we have two last question questions our listeners really love, and it's about the femtech industry. Before I jump to that, I just wanted to let you say any last words you may have about um, this Roe versus Wade being overturned, privacy policies, data. Like, are you feeling like totally upset about the future of digital health, or are you still hopeful for the future of digital health and privacy? Or tell us, just kind of give me what you, as an expert in privacy policy, feels. Honestly, I'm trying to stay as optimistic as possible. And the reason why I say this is that our experience is that users right now are more tech savvy, more informed than ever before. And I think the reason why so many of these health-related apps have proliferated, not just peer tracking apps, but also diet apps and everything that can be related to that, is because people now feel more confident taking charge of their health, finding out new information about themselves, learning about areas that people before would have just delegated to a health professional. Of course, that comes with risks. We don't want people thinking that they're experts in fields where they've never studied. We want people to make sure that they're leading with science, that they're doing verified, that they're at least behaving in a way that's just backed by science in general. But at the same time, I think that shows that people have the potential to be also more privacy savvy at the same time as they're tech savvy and then start using more and more technology to carry out everyday functions. I think we should just hold on to that um, and remember that people actually have this interest, this potential within them to just try and become experts from one day to the next, just learn so much for a short period of time. So I would encourage people to hold on to that feeling. Clearly, you use it every time you start relying on an app predominantly to sort your life out. You can clearly do this by yourself. So just channel that interest, channel that passion, that curiosity into privacy as much as you can, because for us, the reason why we look into privacy to begin with is because privacy is a time shift at risk. Always the information that you think is totally inoffensive one day could lead you to trouble the next. And so it's important to have that awareness at all times in relation to all sorts of data, not just your health data, but other types of data, such as political opinion, uh, ethnic or racial background data, and all these other types of um, information that could potentially be one day really valuable to other people and not for the right reasons. So yeah, just give people that big encouragement to, you know, get a grip and just keep going ahead. Trust yourself, trust your gut as well. And also read the privacy policy. You know what? I'm actually going to end their interview there. That was so powerful. Thank you so much, Laura, for your time today. I really appreciate your expertise on the show. Thank you, Brittany. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my interview with Laura Lazaro Cabrera. Legal Officer at Privacy International. I'd love to hear from you on this topic. Are you concerned about your data privacy? Are you creating an app and wondering how to keep your users' data safe? 
reach out to me at hey, H-E-Y, at femtechfocus.org or social media at femtechfocus. Alrighty, Fem fans, be sure to give this show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up to be a Fem Pro member for only $15 a month and get access to our assets, such as the Femtech Company Database and our self-guided Femtech Accelerator. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech Book Club, which happens the last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring monthly donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.